Welcome to Making Connections News. I'm your host, Mimi Pickering. The Battle of Blair Mountain in West Virginia's southern coal fields happened 100 years ago, August 1921, and the centennial is being celebrated throughout West Virginia and among labor groups around the nation. But what, if anything, is its significance for working people today? That's the topic explored in this episode by historians, authors, artists, and activists who make the case that understanding what the miners and their families were fighting for helps all of us understand the challenges that working people are facing today. This August 19th webinar is part of the Battle of Blair Mountain Centennial and was organized and presented by the Battle of Homestead Foundation. Phil Smith, United Mine Workers Director of Communications and Government Affairs, is the moderator. Thanks to all of you who are with us this evening. This is the first of dozens of events that will take place uh, throughout America as part of the Battle of Blair Mountain Centennial. Please go to Blair100.com for more information. We're going to try and provide an overall frame for the centennial this evening. We're going to spend some time talking about the march and, and battle of Blair Mountain, but but also about its relevance. Was it just some moment in time that, that has no meaning today? Or, or does the notion of 10,000 miners taking up arms and marching to free oppressed miners in Logan and Mingo counties in West Virginia still have relevance today? And if it does, what is that relevance? I can tell you at the UMWA, the lessons learned from Blair Mountain have not been forgotten. The original Blair Mountain March and battle demonstrated just what measures workers will resort to when they believe their lives and their children's lives are at stake. In many respects, if you look around, American working families are approaching such a juncture again today. Real income well, growth is stagnant and has been for decades. The gap between the very wealthy and the rest of us grows by the day. Workers' rights on the job are ignored and the exploitation our grandfathers fought against at Blair Mountain is creeping back into the workplaces all over the country. Generations of students have never learned about the history of workers in America, much less about the March and Blair uh, battle at Blair Mountain. And, and that has been by design. As those who have exerted influence over what is taught in our schools have long buried the truth about the hard and all too short lives, not just minors, but all workers and their families were forced to endure in the days before there were unions. We've had successes. We won the eight hour day and overtime after 40 hours. We created the weekend. We ended child labor. We, we won the Wagner Act, which opened the door to organizing on a scale many thought was not possible. We won healthcare benefits and, and pensions. For a brief 20 or so years after World War II, the American middle class was growing and millions of workers and their families were lifted out of poverty because there were unions. There was the mine workers and the steel workers and the auto workers and the rubber workers, the communications workers, the IBW, Teamsters, so many more. It made life not just bearable, but enjoyable for an entire class of people that had never experienced that in all of history, anywhere in the world. But it did not last. A deliberate, long-term, multifaceted effort to undermine all that had been achieved by America's labor movement was launched in the 1960s and continues to this day. Unfortunately, it has been very successful. We in the UMWA find ourselves back to marching back to protesting, back to engaging in civil disobedience, to fight to maintain what our ancestors won in sweat and blood. And many others are doing the same thing. We recognize that although we have made great strides over the last century, the underlying conditions that caused the original marchers to take up arms and head to Logan and Mingo counties that hot August week in 1921 have not been completely erased. Indeed, they're regaining strength. So we march and we speak out and we organize through the simple yet powerful exercise of solidarity. We continue to work for the day our ancestors dreamed of when they knew that they could leave their children a better world 
and a better future. That's, that's what Blair Mountain means to me and, and, and to the union that I am fortunate enough to work for. Um, and that's hopefully will kind of frame up the conversation that, that we're going to have today. With, with that, I want to introduce our panelists. Uh, um, let me start um, by uh, uh, pointing out uh, Charles Keeney. His friends call him Chuck. I, I guess I'm a friend because that's what I call him. Um, but he's an assistant professor of history at the Southern West Virginia Community and Technical College. He served as president of the Friends of Blair Mountain uh, and was a founding member of the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum. Next is uh, Catherine Venable. She goes by Cat. Cat's uh, a public historian, a, a nationally published nonfiction writer and co-founder of several public history projects, including the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum. Uh, next is uh, Jean Slifer. Uh, Jean is an artist, a writer, a, a museum professional based in Pittsburgh. Uh, he is the creative director and exhibition designer for the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum and is a founding member of the Just Seeds Artist Cooperative. And then we have Barbara Ellen Smith. Barbara recently retired as a professor of sociology and, and women's and gender studies at Virginia Tech. She's a board member for the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum and, and currently lives in Charleston, West Virginia. Chuck, let me return to you. Chuck, you've written a recent book um, about called The Road to Blair Mountain, Saving a Mine Wars Battlefield for King Cole. You were involved uh, preserving Blair Mountain, uh, had a lot of ups and downs, shall we say. Uh, but at the end of the day, you were successful and the groups you were working with were successful. And that's kind of what your book is about. Why don't you introduce yourself and, and tell us a little bit about that. Thanks, Phil. And uh, thanks to the Battle of Homestead Foundation for having us. To introduce myself, this history is personal to me. It's obviously personal to a lot of people. But for me, uh, it's a family history. It isn't simply uh, something that I read about in books. In fact, I didn't learn about it from books. I learned about Frank Keeney, my great-grandfather, who was president of the United Mine Workers in West Virginia from 1917 to 1924. Before that, he was a rank-and-file leader in the Paint Creek, Cabin Creek strike, which begun the West Virginia Mine Wars. He was later um, charged with treason after the Battle of Blair Mountain. He was uh, president of the West Virginia State Federation of Labor, and in the 1930s, he started his own union, the West Virginia Mine Workers, and uh, then later on became involved with the Progressive Miners of America. So he was this individual that was prominent in the labor movement, but I didn't learn about him in school. I didn't learn about him in books at first. Uh, I, read about, I found out about him from my family. And it's through these oral histories and these oral traditions that, that I learned that there was this war that was fought in West Virginia, and yet there were no monuments to this war. There was no commemoration that I knew of, uh, of these struggles that took place. When I was in the eighth grade, taking my mandatory West Virginia studies course, there was nothing uh, about the mine wars in our class. I asked the teacher why she had never heard of the mine wars. And that's in West Virginia, where this history should be celebrated, where it should be known by everyone. This led me into kind of a personal crusade to learn about the history, to kind of contribute to it and try to let more people know about what happened and also kind of discover the, my own family's history on my own and, and try to come to terms with that. So I did a master's thesis uh, at Marshall University on Frank Keeney and wrote a few articles and did my doctoral work at WVU. And after that, I thought that would maybe years later come back to it if uh, you know I had the time once I had settled down and had a full-time job and maybe one day write a full, Link Frank Keeney biography. Then as I was working on my dissertation and I came to Logan at Southern uh, College uh, in Logan and I started teaching there just as the Blair Mountain Battlefield was delisted from the National Register of Historic uh, Places due to influence by certain politicians and also the coal industry and the West Virginia Coal Association and their wonderful friends at Jackson Kelly that always represent them. And so they were successful in delisting it. At the same time, I was trying to teach West Virginia history at the college level, and my students had never heard about the mine wars, and they lived within 10 miles of the spot where the culminating event took place. So I began to get involved. I got involved in a group called Friends of Blair Mountain. We helped organize, along with other groups, a 50-mile protest march to try to save the, the battlefield because it was under threat uh, from destruction by mountaintop removal. Not only is there a systematic 
attempt to leave this out of history books and paint uh, the industry, the coal industry in a much more positive light in the relationship to workers, but also the industry wanted to destroy the very places associated with that. So we did this protest march. I was then uh, six months after the march elected president. I'm the current vice president of Friends of Blair Mountain. After an eight year struggle with legal battles, citizen site inspections, uh, a few computer hacks and death threats later, we were able to get it back on the National Register of, of Historic Places. And at the same time, we were able to be a part of this kind of mine wars renaissance in the sense that uh, the industry made a big mistake in trying to destroy Blair Mountain because that sparked a whole movement which rejuvenated the history and kind of inserted it into the popular consciousness. And I was lucky enough to become involved with this great group that I'm with here tonight, Sean, Kat, and Barbara Ellen, in the creation of the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum. And it became a way of trying to insert that history back into the American popular consciousness and regional consciousness as well. So that's the very brief bit of it. My book tells the, all the details on how that came to pass. Uh, the next person we want to hear from is, uh, uh, is, is Kat. You wrote a book called On Dark and Bloody Ground, an oral history of the West Virginia Mine Wars. Tell us how you got into that, what the book's about, and then a little bit about yourself. Um, yeah, so my name is Catherine Venable Moore, and I'm a nonfiction writer here in West Virginia. And I'm here, I guess, originally, first and foremost, because I'm a, a daughter of West Virginia. Um, it's my home, and I've lived here most of my life. Um, and I've always just been very obsessed with understanding its complicated and troubled and sometimes beautiful history. In 2011, I helped organize the march to Blair Mountain that Chuck was referring to that was aimed at bringing awareness to the fact that the, battle, the battlefield itself was under threat of being mined um, by mountaintop removal coal mining. The march was a life-changing experience for me and many others and really brought me into connection with a lot of other people who felt very passionately and, and, um, and loved this, this piece of our history, this piece of our past as much as me. And, and so some of us went on to form the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum in Matewan, West Virginia, um, a few years later. I've also come to find out over the past you know, decade or so that, that in my own background and in my own ancestry, I have ties with the coal industry. Uh, though not on the side that I would prefer to be associated with. Um, some of my distant relations were some of the most militantly anti-union coal barons uh, of their generation. Um, people, if for the nerds out there, people like Justice Collins and Joseph Beery, um, some of the, the real, the, the, the pioneer industrialists who came to West Virginia, people who would have been the enemies of Chuck's family. And so I'm, I'm haunted by that on a personal level. And um, I think in a certain sense, some of my work is a way of, of trying to work to, for, for some kind of redemption to tell the story. So I'm you know, continually fascinated by echoes between past and present now and then. And it's, it's kind of what I've spent my whole life writing about. So um, I actually am working on two projects. Well, well, one is completed and one is in progress. And the first one you alluded to, Phil, um, is a book that just came out from West Virginia University Press called On Dark and Bloody Ground, An Oral History of the West Virginia Mine Wars. And you'll see that I am not the author. Anne Lawrence, who I think is on the call today, um, is actually the editor of the book and, and put together the material in the first place. I wrote a foreword and President Cecil Roberts of the UMWA was gracious enough to provide an afterword for that book. So I helped shepherd the book into publication with WVU Press, um, but the material itself, as I said, Anne Lawrence, um, back in 1972, when she was a young college student, collected, gathered a set of oral histories through the auspices of, of working for the, the Miners for Democracy movement and their, um, their kind of mouthpiece publication. She went and spent, um, months interviewing some of the firsthand witnesses and even participants in the mine wars, some of the, the primary characters uh, involved in the Battle of Blair Mountain. So it's a, it's a vital and very precious resource for understanding this history from the ground up. I love it because these oral histories collectively just show how, how history is not black and white and it's not 
always strictly an us versus them. People have gradations of um, opinions and feelings about their actions back then. And it, it shows you know, a lot of different perspectives, as well as a glimpse of what it meant when minors were finally allowed through federal legislation to, to come into the UMWA, minors who had been, who had been kept out by their employer, employers for a long time, and how quickly this happened in the, in the you know, shadow of the Great Depression. So it, there's a very moving testimony from the people whose lives were changed, from the very people who were rising into the middle class that Phil was alluding to. Um, it, it's quite a document. All of the proceeds for this book um, Anne has graciously donated to the West Virginia Mine Moors Museum. So we're very grateful to her for that. One more quick, quick bite. Go ahead. So in 2017, I secured a book contract with Random House to write a history of the Mine Wars, and I've been working on that. Okay. <laughs> we're looking forward to, to, to seeing that too. And um, next, I want to introduce Sean Slifer. Uh, Sean is um, part of the West Virginia Mine Wars group. He, he designed the, the exhibits and, and did a lot of work to, to make it the, the really tremendous place that it is now. Uh, hopefully, uh, if you haven't been there, you'll get down there pretty soon. Sean, you just published a book about that really kind of examines an interesting part of the history. It, it doesn't go all the way back to the Mine Wars per se, but the, the whole idea about um, movement there it is. A lot to be angry about. That's right. No, it's quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> we all have a lot to be angry about. Why don't you tell us about the book and, and, and how you came to, to get interested in, in working on this kind of stuff? Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be working with the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum and I have for I think it's about six years now. Um, and through that work, I ended up learning about Don West. This was the original thing. I was at the Appalachian South Folk Life Center for a wedding a few years ago. And uh, a friend of mine, one of the people who was getting married, handed me this, this poetry chat book that was just sitting on a table and said, you got to learn about this guy, Don West. He's really cool. I got to go have a good night. And so I was, you know, flipping through this thing and just kind of going, man, this looks like a zine, like, like the kind of publication I would have grown up with uh, as a young punk, you know, a, a, a self-published small press kind of thing and on the back of it, it it had a little logo and it said Appalachian Movement Press and I texted that little image to a couple of friends of mine who uh, also work in the kind of history of left left-wing political graphics in the United States as I do and they said we've never heard of this place you got to dig into this story and I said okay and then I procrastinated for the better part of a year on actually doing anything about that doing any kind of research or anything so it took me a little while to find out who these people were but um, I started researching Don West and I started researching Appalachian Movement Press and I started finding some of the people who had been involved and I wrote an article for a publication called Signal and then WDU Press got in touch with me and said do you want to turn that into a book and I said, absolutely, although I don't know if it's a book length story, but yes, I will try. And so I found after that, I think a total of 15 people who were involved in Appalachian Movement Press. So this was an organization throughout the 1970s out of Huntington, West Virginia, that was publishing people's history uh, and all kinds of things related to left movement and integrated with the left movement in Appalachia at that time basically for free or at cost and attempting to just distribute these booklets and these pamphlets all over the region. Um, so they did everything from like early Appalachian identity texts that kind of blew up on the scene to republishing histories that they didn't have the permission to republish because they thought they were that important that people should have them, even if they were breaking the law. And I wanted to find these people and talk to them about what they were doing. They published several magazines. Uh, they were the in-house print shop for the left at that time in the area. There's a lot about them in the book. The book is beautiful. If you pick it up, it's full color. And there's a lot of reproductions of some of these texts in the back, including a children's book about sabotaging strip mining equipment, which I highly recommend everybody at least read to themselves, if not the children in their lives. OK, well, great. Thank you. Next, I want to uh, introduce Barbara Allen Smith. Uh, as I said, Barbara just recently retired uh, from Virginia Tech. She wrote probably the seminal work with, with respect to um, black lung called Digging Their Own Graves, Coal Miners and the Struggle Over Black Lung Disease. Barbara recently updated that book. Um, we were happy to help her um, with, with, some with some information and, 
and, and material that she used to, to update that book. Barbara, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and about the book and, and what the what the progression has been uh, over, over this time for what you've been working on? Let me start by saying that I first heard about the Battle of Blair Mountain when I was like 19 years old. And I had moved to Charleston, West Virginia. This is the same period of time that Ann Lawrence um, was in Southern West Virginia. This was the winter of 1971-72. I, though, had come to work with the Black Lung Association in a grubby little storefront in Charleston on uh, Washington Street East, um, and was stunned by the fact that Virtually every coal miner I met who was over the age of about 65 or so um, talked about fighting in the Battle of Blair Mountain with a machine gun. <laughs> now, Chuck Keeney has later told me that the Union miners actually didn't have machine guns. But to me, the point is not so much whether people were fighting the truth, but just the, the incredible sense of sort of power and passion that people had about this history. 50 years later. I mean, we're talking two or three generations later. So it was just striking that, that to have participated in a battle that actually ended in defeat was a badge of honor. <laughs> so as I mentioned, I was there to work with the Black Lung Association. Um, and this was a time of tremendous ferment. Coal miners in West Virginia had gone on strike in 1969. They had shut down the whole state in order to get the West Virginia legislature to recognize black lung as a compensable disease. Unbelievably, given that Great Britain in the 40s uh, had recognized black lung, uh, that is a testimony in part to the power of the coal industry and the state legislature. But they were also, when I arrived, organizing um, into county level black lung association chapters in order to really take on the, particularly the federal government and its Black Lung Benefits Program in terms of who would be eligible, how the disease got defined, who's considered disabled, and so on. And so this, this collective resistance and very much affirmation of a kind of interracial solidarity that in the context of Black Lung also included women, um, spouses of minors, widows of minors, uh, organizing together and really challenging the influence of the coal industry and also that of conservative physicians who continue to seek to deny the significance of black lung disease. So, so I wrote about that, as Phil mentioned in this book that came out in 1987. Um, probably about you know eight people read it or something. It went out of print pretty quickly. And I did move on to other mostly labor issues. But in the context of the recent resurgence of black lung, which is just taking a horrific toll, even on very young miners, miners in their 30s, um, who have only worked you know, a decade or so in the mine and are getting disabled from occupational lung disease, I decided that uh, it was time to revisit the black lung story. And um, it was not only the resurgence of disease, but also the explanations on offer for that resurgence that really disturbed me because they featured technical factors like the changing composition of mine dust and they featured the failure of MSHA, the Mine Safety and Health Administration to enforce the respirable dust standard and so forth, but they completely erased the legacy of Blair Mountain, the legacy of the Black Lung Movement, the legacy of the struggle of workers in the workplace, on the picket line, in the legislature, in Congress, to, in the instance of Black Lung, get this disease recognized, get compensation for it, and be recognized for the, the suffering that they endured. So, so I decided it was time to rewrite the book, update it. Uh, it now includes uh, a beautiful photo gallery by Earl Goddard. The proceeds from its sale uh, also go to the West Virginia Mine Work Museum. And what I hope it does more than anything else is to store the importance of workers' power in the workplace and through their collective organization and action to protect themselves from occupational harm, which as we've seen and as Phil mentioned, uh, unfortunately that power has diminished. 
Well, thank you very much, Barbara. I, I appreciate that. Kat, I'd like to get back to you. Tell us a little bit more. You're, you're working on your own book about the history of the West Virginia mine wars. What will your book add to the discussion about the mine wars and, and, and what happened? Yeah, so um, I think it was in 2014, James Green published a really wonderful comprehensive history of the mine wars, um, a fairly comprehensive history called um, The Devil is Here in These Hills. And I would highly recommend it to anyone who wants to get a primer on this topic. It's for a popular audience, uh, very well researched, which begs the question, why am I writing a book about uh, the mine wars and the Battle of Blair Mountain? And the reason is that I think, well, in part, I felt like there was a, a large puzzle piece that had, that was consistently kind of left out or ignored from most of the historical narratives that we see. So the basic argument, I mean, I make a few, I hope, unique arguments in the book, but one of the main ones is that in particular women, um, Black miners and immigrant miners whose labor was obviously um, essential not only for the to make the machines go, but also to do the work that made life in a coal camp possible. These groups were, in many, many cases, the most exploited and the ones who fought the hardest and sacrificed the most for the union cause. And so by ignoring or not centering them in the story, you're really missing a huge piece of the story. So I wanted to recenter those narratives of women, African-Americans, and immigrants to the story. And so I did that by focusing on three individuals. I'm telling the story of these three, these three people who captured my heart. Um, I guess when I was reading through volumes and volumes of transcripts of Senate testimony, they just kind of leapt out from the page uh, to me. One of them's name is Bill Clark, and he was involved in a strike in 1902. All of these people, by the way, were what they have in common is that they were victims of brutal violence at the hands of the industry and its private police force known as the Baldwin Fultz Detectives. And they each fought back in their own brave and um, incredible ways. So Bill Clark in 1902, who was actually, um, he was murdered by a mine guard uh, for his role in the union movement. Uh, a woman named Giovanna Contenta, who was um, the victim of a brutal assault by a mine, go mine guard in 1912 in the Paint Creek strike. She was an immigrant from Sicily. And a man named Frank Ingham, uh, who lived in Mingo County in 1920 and was one of the main strike leaders in Mingo County in the lead up to the Battle of Blair Mountain. And he, he was also a victim of, he was, they attempted to lynch him actually. And he, uh, he, he was a leader in the movement. And so I tell these three stories and then kind of dissolve to the battle itself, where this interracial, interethnic cadre of unionists banded together and went to war with the industry that controlled their very breath. So I'm arguing that uh, we need to look at these other sort of marginalized perspectives. And we also need to understand what happened in the 20, you know, in the period before going back to the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, globally, regionally, and locally. There's a lot you have to understand about that period before the mine wars even start to really understand why those things were happening. And so I do this by telling the backstories and the life stories of these three individuals. So I hope I'm adding a sort of a feminist, anti-racist perspective and um, also flashes of the current day. So it's sort of an extended historical essay. Sounds fascinating. I, I want to turn to Chuck and you mentioned that you didn't learn about any of this in school and, and you really had to kind of to dig to find out something about it uh, once once you'd heard it from your family history. Why do you think that is? And, and, and as an educator, uh, what's been done up to now to insert the history of the mine wars and labor struggles uh, into the classroom and in the popular consciousness? First of all, the, this is uh, really important that we talk about this because, you know, right now we're talking about race in the classroom. That, that's what, what's grabbing all the headlines right now. And that's important that we talk about race in the classroom. But uh, we also need to talk about labor in the classroom and how that has been left out. And it's not simply an omission. It's something that was deliberately taken out and deliberately left out. And it goes all the way back to the mine wars themselves with the powers that be trying to control the narrative over what happens. And that can go towards uh, Governor Hatfield shutting down uh, pro-minor uh, public, uh, publications like the Socialist and Labor Star in Huntington or the Argus Star or these uh, pro-strike publications and shutting them down, not letting them show their side of the story, 
or reporters that were shot on Blair Mountain and held by Don Chafin and not allowed to tell the whole story, as one mind guard put it, not allow them to say any sob stuff for the rednecks. Or uh, then later on, groups like the American Constitutional Association were created by cooperators and by uh, other business leaders and politicians in the state to control the curriculum that was used in West Virginia schools and in West Virginia history, so that the people themselves had this notion of the coal industry as only being a benefactor and only being uh, this great thing. I remember in my book, I'm quoting one of the textbooks that refers to coal as the wonder substance and the thing that, that brought West Virginia out of the days of the bobcat and the wilderness into civilization. And of course, the, the, the way it was portrayed is that the miners themselves were uncivilized and backwards, or they were manipulated by outside agitators. And so they left it out of the textbooks for over 50 years. There's even an instance where Governor Holt and during the Great Depression, you know, objected to this New Deal project that was going to tell the history of the state and refused to cooperate with FDR's New Deal programs if they didn't take out references in the in the in the book to Mother Jones and uh, the Wheeling Strike and Blair Mountain and Paint Creek and Cabin Creek and the Hawks Nest incident, which of course is America's largest industrial disaster. So it was deliberately left out and whitewashed. And, and, and so up to the present, students don't know about it. Why do they need to know about it? Well, they need to know about it because they need to understand the significance of unions and the importance of organizing and bargaining collectively. And many young people simply don't have that uh, as part of their curriculum, as part of their knowledge base to understand what they are up against when they go into the workplace and understand that the that the freedoms that they have in the workplace that not many these days but what they what they do have was gained and fought for we talk about the freedoms that we enjoy in america and we rightly point to you know sacrifices made by soldiers at normandy but we don't talk about the guys that stormed blair mountain we don't talk about uh the folks that were in the tent colonies on holly grove and eskdale and so we need to understand that in order to Make sure that there's not another Blair Mountain because we don't want another uh, incident where violence ensues. We want to be able to be educated and we want people to understand the significance of, of that. And it's also, of course, important for regional uh, identity for how West Virginians and Appalachians see themselves. As I said before, you know, I, I think we're in many respects reaching a point where many of the same things are happening. I don't think anybody's advocating that, that, that workers take up arms. Uh, necessarily to, to to fix this problem, but but I do think that it is important that we recognize that these problems exist and let's find ways to 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 address them. And we're not going to recognize it if we're not teaching our our, our children about it. There's just no question about that. But Barbara, I want to turn to you just for a second. We we got a I, I think you can answer this pretty quickly. We we got a question from a from a, someone who's watching now. Do you see um, a connection between Miners for Democracy and the Black Lung Association? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there were direct connections between the two. Um, as uh, some of the folks who are listening here may well know, Miners for Democracy was especially strong in Western Pennsylvania, um, Northern West Virginia, uh, and the Black Lung Movement was concentrated more in Southern West Virginia, but individuals who were leaders in the Black Lung Movement um, were in many cases also great supporters of originally Dr. Blonsky, who was from Western Pennsylvania and assassinated um, by loyalists to the union leaders at that time, um, Boyle, uh, but also um, then supporters of the Miners for Democracy, which was founded at Jackie Blonsky's funeral. Um, so there was a lot of confluence between the two and, and indeed a kind of strategic assessment on the part of some people who were really organizing around Black Lung that it was a little dangerous in Southern West Virginia, at least in certain places, to come out straightforwardly in support of the Miners for Democracy, um, because there were some strongholds in favor of sort of the old regime. Um, Black Lung, everybody could agree, agree on, and it really um, helped kind of mobilize discontent um, that then into the for I want to I want to kind of throw this open to everybody. So much of what you see Blair Mountain combining now and what we've just been talking about, so many disparate concerns, workers' rights, 
environmental issues, minority issues. It's often hard to bring that together in today's world. What, what do you guys think about that? And, and, and how, how could we take these issues and, and, and look at them as, as something that, that we can move forward with and perhaps make even a, a larger statement about the importance of Blair Mountain? Sometimes what's helpful to me is um, thinking about Blair Mountain as kind of a slice of a larger ideological struggle or even civil war, you might say, in America that goes back to, I mean, I would say reconstruction, post-reconstruction after the civil war um, about whether or how much or how many of the rights that are enumerated in the constitution extend into the workplace. And this war was fought um, over the freedom to own your own labor and the humanity and dignity of workers um, in the United States. And, and it took place on many fronts in, in many corners of the country, in textile mills, auto plants, you know, train yards, hotels, classrooms, um, Americans of many races, ethnicities, genders um, took part and it's still being fought today. Uh, and unfortunately, workers are losing that battle right now. And it's important because what's at stake in this um, sort of ideological struggle is and was the democratization of the world of work. That's a, that's a quote from a, a, a labor historian I like to use a lot. And you know, what are the limits, if any, of an employer's right to exert control over the lives of workers um, and set the conditions of the work? Uh, how far um, do citizen, citizenship rights extend into the workplace and what rights, if any, do workers have to come together collectively to affect change on the job? And those, those rights are not guaranteed. As Phil mentioned, there was kind of a golden age of, of about 20 years when those rights were enshrined and they no longer are. Yeah, I think it's about democracy and workers' freedom in the end. Anybody else? The story of Blair Mountain to me is also a story about who the enemy is, frankly, to be blunt about it. <laughs> I mean, you know, we're talking very wealthy folks who have managed to enrich themselves through political control as well as their control in the workplace. And um, think of the consequences of that and the capacity to divide people along lines of race and gender and sexual orientation and so on. Um, we risk defeating ourselves, I think, in terms of our um, capacity to organize uh, when we don't understand the importance of the lessons of solidarity and collective resistance. I mean, I think right now, I tend to think a lot about occupational health, but, you know, right now we've seen the recognition increasingly that, oh my gosh, there are all these workers who are like at risk of COVID. And of course, part of the concern, frankly, I think, is that as consumers, people are worried that they're going to get COVID from those workers. But nonetheless, there's at least that attention to the fact that, you know, everybody from Amazon warehouse workers to people in animal slaughterhouses don't have enough personal protective equipment. They're being forced to work overtime. They work in inhumane speeds and so on. Why is that? It's not inevitable. It's not inevitable. They're not organized. You know, they don't have the capacity collectively to resist those circumstances. And um, that is certainly, for me, one of the huge lessons of, of Blair Mountain and of um, the Black Lung Movement and some of the other activism that we've referenced here is this, this importance of interracial, interethnic, and interconnected solidarity of all forms. You know, Blair Mountain itself, if I may add uh, to that, you know, it, itself, uh, the place it's not just, a, it, it, it's a unique place because it's a place of conflict. This, the history is that of conflict, but it's also one of common ground or solidarity, as some might say, in the sense that uh, we see a lot of the similar issues today, uh, you know, that we were seeing in 1921, as people have already pointed out. But it's also a place where people can find uh, a common ground in 1921 people of different ethnicities and races were able to at least temporarily set aside their differences to work together for a common cause. And you also found that in the efforts to preserve the Blair Mountain battlefield. Blair Mountain became this common ground where groups like Friends of Blair Mountain, the local grassroots organization, and also groups like the Sierra Club, 
the largest environmental organization in America, and the United Mine Workers, historically one of the largest and most influential and important unions in America, find common ground and find ways to work together. And so it does, uh, while it, it shows us this example of exploitation of what people will do to other human beings for greed, for money, but it also gives us opportunity to find common cause where otherwise we may not. And that kind of leads into to the next thing I want to ask, which is, what would you like to see happen to the to the battlefield? Um, should we put up markers? Should we have a a a, a, a um, I don't know a, a building? So what, what do you what do you think the Blair Mountain battlefield should become and should look like twenty years from now? First of all, I think it should be out of the hands of coal operators and the landowning companies that they lease from. Uh, that's the first thing that needs to happen. The land ownership needs to change. Uh, United Affiliates, Western Pocahontas uh, Partners, Natural Resource Partners, all these wonderful corporations that, that own so much of the property there. So we want to see that change hands. But uh, I, I want to see a park there. I, I want to see uh, people go there. You can't really fully understand the extent of what happened until you're up on that ridge line looking down at the slopes and understand what a person would have had to been pushed to to try to go up that slope against uh, entrenched positions with machine guns. What would motivate you to do that? You really don't see the power of the story until you're there on, and understand it as a sacred landscape. So I think that's significant. And I think we're still working towards that. We made a video a couple of days ago about the current status of the battlefield. It still is, even though it's saved from surface mining, there are still not protections against timbering and natural gas drilling and some other things. So there's still work to be done. Uh, we have to fully protect the place. I think the Mine Wars Museum, uh, if I may say, has done a pretty good job, thanks to these other folks here with me. Not maybe, maybe not so much because of me, but because of these other guys that have done such great work and, and made it uh, such a wonderful place for people to see. So the story is getting out there. Now we just need to preserve the place and also use it as a means of economic rejuvenation. Uh, you can see the little town of Matewan and how it's improved in the last six years and how new businesses have started. If you go to Blair today, it's a desolate uh, place that, that looks deserted, almost like a ghost town. So it's a potential means of economic rejuvenation for a region that sorely needs it. Anybody else want to have, have a vision? Go ahead, Barbara, please. I just want to mention that the Mineworth Museum has really been working toward um, not only trying to preserve um, the mountain, as Chuck has worked so hard to do in its driving course, but also the route, the march route. I mean, miners march for miles and miles from Marmette to get to Blair Mountain. And um, so being able, to, you know, for people to be able to actually retrace that route, see, have interpretive markers about what happened where, um, and, uh, and so on, would be incredibly exciting. And I would just also flag Chuck's mention of the need really the larger need for land reform. We got to get the land in West Virginia out of the hands of all these corporations um, if we're going to have a future in the state. Yep, I, it, it, I have to say, you know, the, the UNWA, as some of you may know, is going to actually recreate that march um, over Labor Day weekend. Um, and, and having been on that route, and I think some of you, most of you have been on that route, um, uh, making that walk is going to be hard. Um, you know, we're, we're going to have a little bit, we're having a little bit better than, than, than what the, the folks who made the march a decade ago did, because we're going to have traffic control and we're going to have police escorts and all that kind of stuff, because we're going to have a bunch of people. But um, uh, it, it, it's, it's, first of all, it's a, it's a dangerous road, even to drive on. And so when you're walking on it and people in those big coal trucks are driving on, it becomes even more dangerous. So um, yeah, there, there's something that needs to be done uh, with, with that route. And I think you're you're absolutely right, Barbara. It would be great to have interpretive markers as, as you go along and, 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 and a historical view of, of what actually happened here. I'm gonna look at, uh, I've got a question here for, um, for Barbara. What lessons um, does the Black Lung Movement offer to workers and their problems with, with, with just general occupational health and safety to other workers and other, in, in other organizations uh, or other occupations? So I think, when you strip it down, that there's two huge lessons um, of the Black Lung Movement, and one is is something that we've already talked about, and that is that at the end of the day, 
there's just no way that OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or MSHA, you know, that covers coal mines and metal, non-metal, and such other kinds of mining, can monitor effectively workplaces in this country. Um, there are all kinds of reasons for that, but you know, they're underfunded agencies. And at the end of the day, it's workers' capacity to organize and protect themselves. Um, that is just fundamental in terms of occupational health. And we've seen this a little bit during COVID. I mean, you know, we've had nurses sitting down in Chicago saying, hey, we need more PPE and we need access to it now because the supervisor was controlling the key to the closet when the stuff was stored. Um, so <clears throat> we're seeing these sort of episodic and isolated actions around occupational health at this time of intense sort of concern around um, everyone's health. But, um, but I think the workplace lesson is that there's just no substitute for collective action. But the second lesson is more subtle, and I haven't gotten into it um, in this conversation today, but I'll just say a few words about it. And that is that um, there are wonderful, wonderful physicians who do occupational health and environmental health and who are sympathetic to workers and to the problems of communities and so on. But the standards of proof in scientific medicine for occupational causation are such that for workers to be able to prove on a case-by-case -case basis that my respiratory disease was caused by working in a coal mine or in a foundry or in a whatever and not due to air pollution in the place where I live, or for that matter, the smokestack that I live next to, um, it's an incredibly high bar. And it, and it stymies workers' capacity to really gain recognition of disease and compensation for disease when that recognition is, is not forthcoming or there are disputes about it. And so what the Black Lung Movement did, and this was with the help of sympathetic lawyers, was to fight for presumption. You're sick, your lungs show that you can't breathe, and you worked in a coal mine for so many years, you get compensated. We, we just stopped the story there. You should get compensated because there's so much weight of evidence suggesting that it's pretty harmful, it's kind of obvious, you know, to inhale dust day in and day out, you should be compensated for that. Actually, I've, I've been asked a question here um, that, that uh, someone would, would has, has asked me, and I'm just gonna take a, just, just a couple of minutes. Folks know, or many folks know that uh, we, we've had a, um, a uh, strike on going down in Alabama, Warrior Med Coal, um, since April the 1st. Uh, these are these miners, there's two coal mines, um, a preparation plant and a central shop. These, these miners mine um, metallurgical grade coal that's used to make steel. Uh, it's all exported to other countries where they make steel because we don't make steel in this country anymore. Um, so um, Warrior Med Coal was came out of the bankruptcy of a company called Walter Energy. As I think as most people know, uh, the coal industry has been hit by uh, over 60 bankruptcies just in the last 10 years. Um, and uh, the, the period between 2015 and, and 2016, uh, 2012 and 2016 was especially bad. Um, so Warrior Mad is, is, was a, and still is a conglomeration of Wall Street hedge funds, investment houses. Um, those are the owners of this company. Uh, there, it, it, it's not, you know, um, it, it, it's not people who have been involved in or care about uh, anything but making money. Um, so um, the contract that the judge threw out our contract, threw out the health care for retirees, threw out the pensions for retirees, threw out, oh, by the way, their, black, their obligations to pay the, the, the black lung benefits for the, the people that may have black lung, threw out, threw out their obligation to pay into the black lung disability trust fund. Um, so... Um, uh, and also uh, eliminated whatever environmental uh, cleanup uh, obligations that the, that the old company may have incurred. So uh, that's what happens in bankruptcy court. Uh, they also threw out the, uh, you know, essentially we had, we did not represent the workers there any longer. So we had to fight back from that point. The, the contract that um, the workers took was really a question of, are you gonna, not, not are you gonna have, uh, 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 it was, are you gonna have a job or not? So at any rate, big pay cuts, big healthcare cuts, um, 
And um, we were hopeful we were able, going to be able to get some of those things back uh, in uh, in this round of negotiations. The, the, the contract that, that we finally got from the company that we took to the membership was down, voted down 95% to 5%. Uh, I've been around this industry a long time. I've never seen a vote like that before. Um, so at any rate, um, and we've really seen no movement since that point. Now we've got a lot of uh, 800 people out on strike um, and families. Um, the you know we're we're providing strike benefits. We're paying for their health care, uh, but there are some funds. And if you go to the UMWA's uh, page, if you want to make a donation either to help the strikers directly or um, through um, uh, there's a food pantry or food bank that's set up there. Uh, I encourage you to do so because this this looks like it's going to go a long time. Some of you remember the Pittston strike um, back in uh, back in 1989 and 1990 that lasted 10 and a half months. We hope this doesn't go along that long, but right now the company isn't making any movement. So um, somebody asked me to to make a comment on that, so so I did. Uh, we and we appreciate um, all of the help that that people have already made, and and if you feel your way to go do that, those folks could sure use your help. Um, so we're, we're going to do one more question here, um, uh, and, and this is, um, again, a question for everybody. Um, this is from Allison Patonic. Uh, the, the stories from Blair Mountain are powerful lessons in interracial solidarity, labor feminism, and solidarity for immigrant justice. What ideas do you have for broadening who teaches the history and interprets it so that workers of color, women workers, see themselves um, in, in, in this history uh, moving forward? Uh, Kat, this is kind of right up your alley. Why don't you start and, and maybe we can have a, a few other people jump in. Um, it's a really um, wonderful question. Um, I mean, I think, uh, so the, the Mind Wars Museum uh, tries to represent, um, visually represent on our walls and um, in our, you know, audio exhibits and, and physical exhibits, um, the breadth of the, um, of the communities that were involved. So I think one thing is, is, is just getting those faces up on walls um, and getting those faces reprinted in books. Um, and some of the more recent scholarship, like John Green's book um, does some of that. Um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, we've, we've developed curricula um, that that really, I mean, it, it focuses on focuses to a large extent on um, on on this notion of inter, you know interracial solidarity and interethnic solidarity, um, which wasn't always perfect. Um, it, you know, um, African Americans, while they you know were um, while the Union's Charter, um, um, uh, you know, explicitly states that that no one will be discriminated against uh, because of their race to, to belong. Um, black organizers still faced a lot, uh, you know, huge uphill battles even within the organization. Um, so I think like bringing out some more of the nuance of these stories, um, I think not just, I, I think like sometimes we get excited about, um, you know, there were black workers and, and white workers and immigrant workers and it was so great and everyone was just like coming together and working together and and that's true. Um, there, there was that, um, but it's a, it's a larger, you know, it's a, it's a more complicated story than that. So I think, like, um, really digging in and trying to um, unpack some of the nuance. Um, that's what I'm trying to do with my book, anyway, sure. um, to, to play a small role there. Sure, Sean, you got your hand up. Go ahead. Uh, let's get John unmuted, and he can go ahead. There we go. So I think you know, there's, there's. There's one avenue that that pops into my head easily, which is, you know, allow more people access to publishing, allow uh, more people access to academia, you know, lower tuitions, et cetera. I think those are those are things that that we can kind of easily look at what's already on the table that certain people have access to and say, let's let's open those doors wider. But I also think I was I'm coming back to the question of what the Blair Mountain itself would look like fully preserved and what we would want to see there. And I've started to try to get more comfortable with the idea that not specifically with Blair Mountain, but generally in terms of memorial in public that we might not know exactly what that's going to look like. And it might not look like the codex that we're already familiar with, right? So a nonfiction book or a museum or a statue of a famous person 
those are specific modes of memory, right? But there's other modes of memory that don't necessarily come out of the same power structures. So I'll say like, I, I believe her name is Jacqueline Smith has been protesting out front of the Civil Rights Museum in Memphis for almost 30 years. Her protest is that Martin Luther King Jr. would not have wanted a museum to civil rights movement, he would have wanted a community center or a college or another more active space. So when I talk about reimagining, that's what I mean, right? I work in a museum and I do write nonfiction and I value those things a lot, but I also think we may have to open our minds to other modalities for memory that may come from sectors that haven't had the voice to do that previously. Chuck, Barbara, Barbara, go ahead. I'll just say something real quick, and that is going back to this most recent question in terms of um, women workers, workers of color, and so on. I think that, and I certainly include myself in this, there has been among labor historians a kind of romance associated with the industrial union movement and with certain heavy industries, steel, auto, coal, and so on. But a whole lot of women workers and a whole lot of workers of color are working in service sector jobs, they're working in fast food, they're working in nursing homes, they're working in places that are invisible to us. Um, and, uh, and I think, you know, the kind of oral history work and the, the labor work needs to focus much more on the places where, where those workers are, which of course reflects also how our economies have changed. Chuck, you get the last word here. Well, you can't celebrate history from the bottom up unless people from the bottom are the ones celebrating that history. You're not going to get good history of minorities, different races, uh, labor movements necessarily from institutions that have historically worked to control those groups. And when you look at something like West Virginia history textbooks, well, it, it's kind of like reading uh, the wall of, of hieroglyphs by a, by a pharaoh's tomb in the sense that you're, you're seeing uh, only what they want you to see and only the story that, that, that they want to tell you. And one of the things, at least I as a teacher try to do is to get my students to look deeper and go for themselves. And I think one of the things that the Mind Wars Museum is doing uh, in addition to being just a museum is we're beginning to make uh, a collection of artifacts, uh, also source material and places where people can come and research and then they can then go and kind of grab the baton and, and take it for themselves and run with it. So it's a long game. I've called it identity reclamation in the past uh, and it's a long game, but I think we're making progress over time. I would agree. Listen, I just want to thank all four of you. Uh, it's, been a, it's been a great evening. You've been listening to an August 19th webinar that was part of the Battle of Blair Mountain Centennial. Speakers were Chuck Keeney, Catherine Venable Moore, Sean Silfer, and Barbara Ellen Smith. Find out more about this history and current events at Blair100.com and the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum at wvminewars.org. The webinar was presented by the Battle of Homestead Foundation, an organization that preserves the history and explores the relevance of that 1892 labor struggle led by Pittsburgh-area steelworkers. Thank you for listening to Making Connections News. All of our stories about opportunities and challenges for diversifying Appalachia's economy and renewing our communities are available on our website or wherever you find your podcasts. I'm your host, Mimi Pickering. We end our show with Fire in the Hole by Hazel Dickens from the Mate One movie soundtrack. You can tell them in the country, tell them in the town. The miners down in Mingle their shovels down. We won't pull another pillow out another ton or lift another finger till the union we have won. Stand up, boys, let the bosses know. Turn your buckets over, turn your lanterns low. There's fire in her hearts and fire in her soul, but there ain't gonna be no fire in the hole. Daddy died a minor, Grandpa he did too. 
A bed is cold will kill me for my working days is through In a hole that's dark and dirty and early grave confined I plan to make a union for the ones I leave behind Stand up boys, let the bosses know Turn your buckets up 